Lord be with you. Let us pray. Almighty God, you have given your only begotten Son to take our nature upon him and to be born of a pure virgin. Grant that we who have been born again and made your children by adoption and grace may daily be renewed by your Holy Spirit through our Lord Jesus Christ, to whom with you and the same Spirit be honor and glory now and forever. Amen. All right. A little bit of a smaller group today. That's okay. I'm sure others will join up as time, comes on, time goes on. Uh, we are currently in the sacrament section of uh, the catechism, which is a little bit of an addendum in the midst of the creed section. Um, you know, it's an interesting question because in old, in old Anglican catechisms, really the 1662 catechism is the first time that information on the sacraments appears. Um, and uh, the reason it appears in 1662, if you remember historically, what leads up to 1662? Come on. There's a time in English history called the Commonwealth where everything basically becomes Presbyterian for a time. And uh, at the end of the Commonwealth, uh, the Anglicans come back in and they, they say, well, all right, winners get to rewrite history, so we're going to have teaching on the sacraments. <laughs> and that's really where that comes from. Uh, and part of the problem with, uh, with material at the end of anything, you may remember in, in uh, growing up and going to school, and, and you never hit the end of your history book, right? Because it was always kind of like just, it, you just never got there. Um, the sacraments just tended to be lumped off in this back-end thing. And in creating this catechism, one of the things we wanted to make sure we did was make sure that the sacraments are up front and in a place where they'll be dealt with. Um, and also where they won't be abstracted from, uh, from, from especially the matter of the creeds. Um, and the reason for that is that um, we are intent on saying that the sacraments show forth the faith. Um, so that's an important thing just to, just to lay out. Okay, so last week we talked about absolution. Today we're going to talk about ordination. We're going to talk about marriage. And we're also going to talk about the anointing of the sick. I hope we might not get there. Uh, we are on question 122, and we're just going to mention these here. What is ordination? Through prayer and the laying on of the bishop's hands, ordination consecrates, authorizes, and empowers persons called to serve Christ and his church in the ministry of word and sacraments. So um, we teach that uh, ordination um, actually uh, does, does several things, but it's at the laying on of the bishop's hands. So we require uh, the laying on of a bishop's hands for ordination, uh, and that is uh, something which Anglicanism has maintained. Um, and somebody will always ask, well, so what about other churches? Are there, are there orders invalid? And uh, we as Anglicans are very clear, and we say we're not going to shed... Uh, What's the, um, we're not going to call them into doubt. Um, but instead, we'll simply say, uh, we require ordination at the hands of the bishop. Um, and this has been maintained throughout Anglican, Anglican, Anglicanism's history. Uh, and at times, it's been actually quite generous. You know, sometimes um, the, the, the overture was made to Puritan preachers, you know. <laughs> Listen, it's not that hard. If you want to be authorized, just come in and be ordained by the bishop. We can make that happen. <laughs> um, and they still refused. Um, but it is to say that um, we require it uh, for the sake of conformity uh, to, to the ancient church, and this is something that's really, really important. Um, you know, remember, and we can look 
for this. First Timothy 1, chapter 1, verse 5. Remember this? You can probably guess what this is if you know First Timothy much. But I'll read it to you. Um, actually, I think this is a this is one of those missed uh, missed texts where we didn't get the we didn't get the text right. Um, but where is it? Actually, I think it's Second Timothy. Yes, here we go. Um, he reminds Timothy of the sincere faith. This is Second uh, Timothy chapter one. Verse 5, I remind you, I am reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your, and your mother Eunice, and now I am sure dwells in you. Hence, I remind you to rekindle the gift of God that is within you through the laying on of my hands. So there's this constant, uh, in the New Testament, we see this constant action of laying hands on those uh, who are set apart for the work of ministry. Uh, you'll remember that this also happened to, to, to Paul and Barnabas. Before they go to Antioch, the apostles lay hands on them. The Holy Spirit says, um, lay hands on Paul, set apart Paul and Barnabas um, for this work, and they, and they lay hands on them. But here's, here are these, these actions. I want to go through these, these three. Ordination consecrates, authorizes, and empowers. So first, consecrates. What does this mean? Set apart, made holy even. Um, and that doesn't mean that, uh, that a bishop is automatically holy. God, I wish. That would be awesome. <laughs> but, but, but it means that they're set apart um, for, this, for this work. Um, they're also authorized, meaning that um, when, when, uh, when someone is ordained, they're authorized to do things. They're given authority um, and empowers. Meaning that we believe that, that ministry is exercised, ordained ministry is exercised by the work of the Holy Spirit. I mean, in fact, in recent uh, years, this has been made manifest in kind of a return to the Anglican ordinals, um, where instead of saying something like this in the ordinance, make him a priest, now it's give him the, give him the gift of the Holy Spirit for the work of the priest, right? And there's a gigantic difference, which is that um, this is an outpouring of the Holy Spirit for this specific work. Um, called to serve Christ and his church in the ministry of word and sacrament. So ordained ministry, um, and this is not to say as opposed to any other kind of ministry, because we're going we're gonna to mention this. Uh, ordained ministry and orders specifically deal with word and sacrament, always. All right. What grace does God give in ordination? In ordination, God confirms the gifts and calling of the candidates, conveys the gift of the Holy Spirit for the office and work of bishop, priest, or deacon, and sets them apart to act on behalf of the church and in the name of Christ. So God not only confirms these gifts and callings, um, which is to say that um, we spend unbelievable we spend an unbelievable amount of time doing discernment with ordination candidates. Um, you know, this is the reason that we, we often require um, at least a year, maybe two years, three years plus um, of discernment. You know, is this something you're called to do before you even begin preparation? Um, there are various phases of this, of this ordination process. Um, and usually, you know, the way it was for me, it was, uh, it, it just, I was basically, I was ordained 10 years after first experiencing that call to ordination. It took 10 years. Um, 
and a lot of that was just kind of like going through college and being mentored and having clergy that were mentoring me, but then, then it increased in intensity. Um, so we were intent on that. Um, so those gifts and callings are confirmed, and God does that, conveys the gift of the Holy Spirit for the office and work. Um, these are uh, really synonyms in a sense, but office and work means that uh, you're set apart to do something, right? Um, it's not simply to say, oh, you're just set apart to be something. No, you're set apart to do something. Um, and it's of these three orders, and sets them apart to act on behalf of the church and in the name of Christ. Now, we're going to talk about what these three orders are, but all of them act on behalf of the church. Um, so when I celebrate the Eucharist, I do so as a representative of the church and as a representative of Christ. Um, anytime I do anything as a priest, I'm doing that. What are the three ordained ministries in the Anglican Church? The three orders are bishops, priests, and deacons. And you may note that these are not only of Anglicanism, but they're shared with Roman Catholics, they're shared with Eastern Orthodox, um, and this is an intentional thing. Among the bodies uh, of, the Reform of, of the Reformation, uh, Anglicans were fairly unique in the sense that we maintain these three, this threefold order. Um, the, I think the only other ones in the Reformation were like Swedish Lutherans <laughs> that maintained the episcopate uh, and, and still in some ways have. Um, but it's simply to say that we maintain these as, as the orders of the ancient church, and they're also um, derived from Scripture. Now, as any Scripture scholar will tell you, um, the orders and these threefold orders actually come after the New Testament period in, in terms of clarity, but you can see them in seed, and we're going to talk about that as, as we go through this. So let's, let's jump in. What is the work of bishops? The work of bishops is to present and serve Christ and the church as chief pastors, to lead in preaching and teaching the faith and in shepherding the faithful, to guard the faith, unity, and discipline of the church, and to bless, confirm, and ordain, thus following the tradition of the apostles. Okay, there's a lot here. We're going to unpack it. Um, but first I want to say, uh, etymologically, where this word comes from, bishop. Um, it actually is uh, the derivative of the Greek word in the New Testament, episkopos, um, which means overseer, epi meaning over, skopos seeing, um, overseer. They're to oversee the church. Um, and in many places in the New Testament, this will often be translated in English, overseer. Um, and of course, the King James Bible, it's, it's, it's translated bishop. In other places, it's translated as bishop, but usually you'll see overseer in English translations. It comes episcopos, piscop, bishop, right? And you get there. Um, but the first work of the bishop is to represent and serve Christ and the church as chief pastors. Um, as Anglicans, we believe there's actually no office greater than that of a bishop. Uh, the bishop is it. The bishop of a diocese is the chief pastor. Um, and of course, there's collegiality among the bishops, uh, which holds that intention. So if a bishop goes off the rails, right? Uh, there's a catch there, right? Which is to say, uh, we're gonna we're gonna we're gonna bring you back in line, or just excommunicate you, and that'll be it. Um, but I will say, coming out of a church that uh, that did not have great discipline and unity among the bishops, this is one of the re really refreshing things about our, the ACNA is that we do have collegiality among bishops. Um, they are responsible to one another. Uh, they are they are meant to be responsive to one another. Um, they act as a college. Um, and this is a really, really important thing. 
um, and they take action in, on one another, and they, they're very intent on that. Um, but the, the, the understanding of a chief pastor is um, that um, we, we need someone to shepherd. Now, what do shepherds do? Well, you can think about it, right? What do they do? I'm talking about sheep shepherds. <laughs> Take care of sheep, okay? They guard them from threats, okay? Yep. They lead them where? To, to good land, to grazing land, to food, right? Um, so they, 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 they guard them against threats. They lead them to food. What else do they do? They live with them, yep. But they, they keep them together, right? So, so bishops have been understood to guard the unity of the church. Um, they've been understood to defend the church, to guard the unity of the church, and also to feed the church. Um, so you're going to hear about that. To lead in preaching and teaching the faith and in shepherding the faithful. Okay? So um, bishops are often called uh, the chief catechists, which is a great, a great phrase. Um, I wish bishops would take that more seriously, but there it is. They, they're called the chief catechists, the chief teachers. Um, and in many cases in the ancient church, you see this across the board. Bishops are understood to be the catechists. They're understood to be the head catechist. Um, they're to shepherd the faithful, to lead them, uh, give them vision, to guard the faith, unity, and discipline of the church. Um, so, uh, you know, this is, this is what happens when bishops meet together, and this has happened throughout history, uh, from really... You know, read it in the Acts of the Apostles, this Jerusalem council that's convened to, to answer this question, what do we do with these Gentiles who are becoming Christians? Um, straight on up till today. Um, and churches have these councils in which they make these decisions and which the bishops are bound to, bound to those decisions. Um, they guard the unity of the church. Um, there's, there's sort of a joke in our diocese that many people are starting to forget, but uh, at one point, uh, a priest in the diocese was, was uh, right, this was probably 20 years ago, was writing some things that were definitely against Scripture and definitely against the faith. And uh, Bishop Hiker wrote him a letter, which will forever be called, in my opinion, the Howler, um, because it evokes these like Harry Potter images, because it was, it was a very stern rejection. And he, and this is, this is the case, he made the priest read it in church on a Sunday, this letter, which basically renounced everything that he had said before. Um, and so I live knowing that that is certainly something which could happen to me. Um, so I'm very much cognizant of being held in this discipline, held in this unity. Um, it's also up to the bishop to, if, if that goes so far, uh, to, to bring discipline on that, on that priest, on that, on that deacon, um, yesterday at the Diocesan Convention, we elected members of what we call our ecclesiastical trial court, um, and, and I don't think a, I don't think an ecclesiastical trial has been uh, has been convened in recent memory. But if it was, it would deal with that question, um, and the bishop would be leading that. Um, but also at the end, to bless, confirm, and ordain. Um, the bishop's job is first to bless. Uh, you remember the bishop came here in September to bless and consecrate our baptismal font. The bishop came here in April to bless this whole church building um, and to go around blessing things. To confirm, uh, uh, you, many of you are thinking about being confirmed. Many of you are uh, praying about that. Uh, but the bishop's job is to do that, to confirm, to um, ask for the outpouring of the Holy Spirit on those who come to him for that end, and to ordain. Um, 
only bishops can ordain in the Anglican tradition, uh, and, uh, and even though uh, priests uh, assist in the ordination of other priests, um, it is the bishop's prerogative to do that. Um, let's open up some of these scriptures here. Let's turn to Titus 1, 7 through 9. Spent a bit of, bit of time on this because uh, we're actually in the process of electing a new bishop. Um, so I want to say that just quickly. Um, Anglicanism has lots of different practices for, uh, for, um, for choosing bishops. In some provinces, the bishops pick uh, priests they want to make bishops, and they just simply deploy them out to dioceses. Uh, in uh, the Church of England, for instance, uh, the Crown Appointments Committee makes, makes recommendations to the queen who chooses bishops. And of course, I'll just tell you, that's a disaster. <laughs> the crown appointments process is a complete disaster, and, and everybody in the Church of England knows it needs to be, knows it needs to be addressed, uh, but yet it continues on because uh, that's just the deal they have. Here in America, we elect bishops. The, dioc the diocese elect bishops at a, an electing convention uh, from among nominees. Um, you have to actually get a majority of both the clergy votes and the lay, and the lay votes of delegates to that convention uh, in order to uh, be elected. But let's look at this, First Timothy, or First Titus, or Titus uh, 1, uh, 7 through 9. For a bishop, as God's steward, must be blameless. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of goodness, master of himself, upright, holy, and self-controlled. He must hold firm to the sure word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction and sound doctrine and also to confute those who contradict it. I'll continue on. For there are many insubordinate men, empty talkers and deceivers, especially the circumcision party. They must be silenced since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for base gain what they have no right to teach. Um, so Paul writes to Titus, and one of the main areas of concern is this. We have people that are going around teaching, you must be circumcised in order to become a Christian. Okay. Now, let me just ask quickly. Why is this a problem? I mean, we can think about theologically why it's a problem. Let's think about in terms of what's happened thus far that it's a problem. Okay, you've got the Jerusalem Council in which the apostles decide what to do with Gentiles who become Christians. Are they to be circumcised? No. There's a decision of the church, a decision of the apostles. The gospel which the apostles preach does not require circumcision. So, for Paul, understand this. If you preach that one must be circumcised in order to become a Christian, what is this? But, in a, kind, but a kind of apostasy. But a kind of rebellion against apostolic authority. So, you see what's going on here? He's saying, listen, no. A bishop must, um, must, listen to this again, must hold firm to the sure word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction and sound doctrine and also to confute those who contradict it. For there are many insubordinate men, empty talkers and deceivers, especially the circumcision party. Um, so this is to say uh, that the bishop is to guard against this. Um, but let's, let's also look at these qualities of life which are outlined. For a bishop, as God's steward, a bishop is a steward of the church, uh, to care for the church, must be blameless. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable. Um, and this is simply to say that, that um, 
you know, as as one who will be uh, working on the as is on the nominating committee, this is this is what we're looking for. Um, we're looking for someone who has uh, absolutely stellar record of of, of ministry, um, who is hospitable, um, who's holy, who's upright, who's got great self control, and who's able to teach the faith and teach well. All right, let's move on. What is the work of priests? The work of priests serving Christ under their bishops is to nurture congregations through the full ministry of the word preached and sacraments rightly administered and to pronounce absolution and blessing in God's name. Let's say a little bit about this word priest. The word priest actually comes from the New Testament's word presbyteros, um, which is a bit of an odd thing because when we use the word priest, uh, in many cases, especially in biblical translations, we're not talking about presbyters, we're talking about Old Testament priest. Well, there's another Greek word for that in the, in the New Testament. Uh, and so there's been a bit of a flipping of those words. Uh, but priest, and the reason for that is just basically in church history, is that people saw continuity between the New Testament uh, priesthood and the Old and started calling the Old Testament, started calling the priest. Um, but it's to say that the, the work of priests serving Christ under their bishops um, which means that uh, there's no such thing as a priest without a bishop. Um, you, I have to have a bishop. Um, so this is an interesting thing. <laughs> um, uh, uh, if if a uh, if a priest becomes in, incommunicado, meaning he doesn't he doesn't respond to any uh, communications from the bishop, they just basically triumph or abandon the communion in absentia, and he's done. That's it, uh, because you have to have a bishop. There's no way to be a, a priest without a bishop. Um, and we, I serve at the bishop's, uh, and originally here, in Christ, here at Christ Church, I served at the bishop's pleasure. Um, in fact, the old story is I had to ask the bishop to be appointed here. I couldn't just say, I want to do this. Now, I discerned that and then said to the bishop, would, would you appoint me here? And he consented to that. Um, but I would say as well that any ministry which I have here is an extension of the bishop's ministry into this parish. So that's important to keep in mind as well. And the work is to nurture congregations through the full ministry of the word preached and sacraments rightly administered. Now you'll remember that as we've said in the catechism, uh, the, the full identity of the church is where the, the word is rightly preached, the gospel is rightly preached, and the sacraments are rightly administered. Um, so uh, in a sense, there's, there's a need for a priest to have, to have the church. And so this is an, an important thing. Um, so, and I would say this is really where you know, if you're, if you're considering ordination, this is where you know you've got it, is when you say, I feel called to proclaim the word, and I feel called to the sacraments, and you feel this uh, gravitational pull. And finally, to pronounce absolution and blessing in God's name. Um, this is what priests do. What is the work of deacons? The work of deacons serving Christ under their bishops is to assist priests in public worship, instruct both young and old in the catechism, and to care for those in need. Um, now, the work of deacons, this is an interesting historical note, um, the permanent diaconate has only recently been brought back into Anglicanism and into the Catholic Church, into the Roman Catholic Church as well. Um, so there's a bit of an interesting history there. Uh, for, for centuries, it was understood that um, you would be ordained first a deacon, and then maybe six months or a year later a priest, and that was that was what happened to me. Um, but somewhere along the line, someone said we should really bring back the permanent diaconate, and so in the West, uh, this was brought back. 
Um, but of course, everyone's scrambling. Well, we got to give these people something to do. <laughs> and, uh, and, uh, and these are really just some of the things, but it's to assist in public worship. Um, so deacons are usually the ones who read the gospel. They're usually the one uh, who, who pray the prayers of the people. Um, and also who um, call the congregation to confession. Um, and they also serve the chalice, almost always. Um, here at Christ Church, because we don't have any deacons, we're all priests, but we're also deacons, uh, someone plays that role on a Sunday, so that you can watch for that. Um, assisting in public worship is to say that um, what the church has always wanted to have, and this is really from ancient times, is that those who are committed and ordained for service to the world and service to the church are upfront and visible. Um, so if you look at uh, Acts chapter 6, when, um, when Greek-speaking Jews, uh, seven of them are ordained as deacons, what, what do, you, why are they, do you remember why they're ordained, what problem it is they're, they're ordained to solve? Yeah, so Hellenists and widows are, are getting neglected in the daily distribution of food. And the apostles sit there and say, we weren't made apostles to serve tables. <laughs> and they don't mean this in a derogatory sense. They're just simply saying, we weren't, we, weren't made, we, weren't, we weren't given this ministry so that we could sort of deal with these issues. Um, and so they, they selected seven uh, to be ordained as deacons to serve the church in that way. Um, and they, these were particularly Hellenist Jews. And the reason they were Hellenists was because they were... Um, uh, you know, there, there was some favoritism going on among, in the church. And so this was an answer to that question. Um, so that's a really big, important part. I think deacons are always, first and foremost, servants of the church. Um, so if you might, you know, we often discern this as, uh, you know, I'm always looking for who will be our permanent deacon here. And, <laughs> and the first thing I'm looking for is, I want the one who takes out the trash and who doesn't hesitate to go get paper towels for the bathrooms, and who does dishes, uh, all those kinds of things. Um, because these, this is diaconal ministry in the most basic sense. Um, to instruct both young and old in the catechism, uh, deacons are, are understood to be catechists. Um, and this is a really important ministry, um, and, uh, and it's something that um, often gets neglected, and, and deacons are to serve in that way. Um, and finally, to care for those in need. Um, I've had permanent deacons in the past, and they have been wonderfully responsive to this problem of we have always people in the church who have needs. Um, sometimes it's somebody to take them to the doctor, right? Sometimes it's a need like, I need somebody to mow my lawn, <laughs> I need, or somebody just to manage a schedule of people who can mow my lawn, or, uh, or you know, I really just need someone to sit with me, um, or I need someone to sit with me while I have chemotherapy, or I need someone to uh, do this, that, or another thing. Um, and so uh, I'll, I'll never forget this. Uh, there was a guy that I personally catechized and baptized, and he was a Learjet mechanic. And he was more than just a Learjet mechanic. He was the guy that like, made sure that that jet had everything on it, snacks and things. It was the jet used by the owner of the San Diego Chargers. Um, and Jeff was a servant at heart. And I knew this from the, before he was baptized. He wound up later being ordained a deacon. And, and I would see him undertaking constantly works of service. Um, and I have no doubt that this was the Holy Spirit working in him to call him to this. Um, and so he's a guy who gets up on Saturday mornings and makes sandwiches for the homeless, and he goes out into the bridges and overpasses, and he passes out sandwiches. This is an incredible ministry. It's an important ministry. Um, 
and uh, it's a really important one. Okay, let's talk about marriage for a bit. Marriage occurs in the Catechism twice uh, because it bears repeating. The teaching on marriage needs to be repeated, uh, and it appears here and also uh, in the Ten Commandments section. I'll let you guess where. Um, so let's begin. What is marriage? Marriage is a lifelong covenant between a man and a woman, binding both to self-giving love and exclusive fidelity. In the rite of Christian marriage, the couple exchange vows to uphold this covenant. They do this before God in the presence of witnesses who pray that God will bless their life together. Um, so first, marriage is a lifelong covenant. Um, what does this signify? in the basics. As long as both of you are still alive, you're bound to the covenant. Okay, so that's the first thing. It's, it's the marriage covenant is only broken when one of you dies. Um, between a man and a woman. Now, this, this covenant refers to how two become one. Um, the language of covenant in Scripture is always the language of two separate entities becoming one or binding themselves to each other. Um, this binding is actually the language of religion um, in, in Scripture and also in, uh, uh, in, in, this, uh, in, in the marriage rite as well. Uh, they're bound uh, to self-giving love and exclusive fidelity. Now, I should note as well, we teach emphatically that marriage is between a man and one man, one woman. Let's make that clear. But they're bound to self-giving love. Now, what does this mean, bound to self-giving love? Well, you know the marriage vows, right? In what? In sickness and in health. Uh, for richer, for poorer, for better, for worse, right? So it's to say, not only when things are really good, and not only when things are happy, but when things were really awful, too. Um, and this is not just love, but self-giving love. Um, it has to be qualified these days, love does, because love can mean all kinds of things, and we talk about love in a variety of contexts, and there's People Magazine love, and there's uh, Daytime Soap Opera love, and there's love in movies and love in, uh, in all kinds of ways. But for Christians, the marriage, marriage, marital love is about the gift of self to the other. Um, and this happens in a variety of ways, whether it's doing dishes when you don't want to or, uh, or um, uh, you know, staying up at night with, with, a, with a screaming, crying baby or staying up at night with, with uh, a wife who's very, very, very sick. Um, but it also happens in the marriage bed that self-giving love takes place, uh, this gift of self. Um, and to exclusive fidelity, this means, you know, this is what is said in the... In the uh, in the marriage rite, forsaking all others. Marriage requires that we forsake other potential goods, other potential people. Uh, they're forsaken um, for the sake of, of, of trust and fidelity and faithfulness. In the rite of Christian marriage, so here's, here's an interesting thing. Um, you'll remember that these five sacraments are, are called rites and institutions. So we have the institution of marriage, um, which I should say, when is, when is marriage instituted? The wedding feast at Cana? No, you're saying, no, it's wrong. Huh? When? Yeah, Genesis 2, in creation, right? Uh, it's marriage instituted in creation. But there's a rite of Christian marriage, so you have to kind of parse this out. 
marriage has existed from, from the beginning. Um, this is why Jesus returns his, his disciples. In the beginning, it was not so. He wants them to see how things were in the beginning so they can see, things how, see how things ought to be. Um, but we do have a right of Christian marriage, and this has developed through the centuries. Um, and the couple exchange vows. Um, so the woman vows that she, will, uh, that she will uphold certain things, but the man upholds certain vows as well to uphold his covenant. And they do this before God. Um, and this is why, and I, I need to say this rather strongly, this is why, according to the diocesan canons, I'm not allowed outside of certain dispensations to celebrate marriages outside of a consecrated church building. Because we want it to be emphatically clear that these vows are taken in the presence of God. Now you might say, but God's present everywhere, including my favorite beach in Cancun. Well, you're right, okay? All right, I'm not going to argue the point. But let me just tell you, something very sacred happens when vows are taken in a church. And that's not to slight you if you made your vow somewhere else. It's just to say that that's what we do here, okay? Um, we do this before God in the presence of witnesses. Um, I've, I've told couples through the, through the years, I'm happy to help you elope as long as I have 60 days notice, a declaration of consent, and witnesses, okay? But I'm happy to make, happy to make that happen. I can help you elope, no problem, that'll be fine. Um, but, but I gotta have that, okay? Because witnesses are required. Why are witnesses required? Well, it's simple because those vows are not only taken to the other, but they're made before the whole community with witnesses who stand in for that whole community and who say, we will hold you to this. So every time I do a marriage, I always pull the, uh, the best man and the maid of honor, matron of honor uh, together in a room. And I say, now listen, I'm going to tell you something here. Like, <laughs> if this goes south, you need to call me as soon as possible. And, and I want to make sure you know uh, that it's your job to remind them of what they just did today or what they're going to do today. Um, and I usually do that as we're about to sign the book because the witnesses have to sign, the, have to sign our register. Um, and they also have to put in their, their name, address, and phone number, right, for that reason. Um, and the witnesses, and, and in this case, the witnesses are now expanded to the whole congregation uh, watching this go down, who pray, to, who pray that God will bless their life together. So man and woman come not only seeking God's blessing, but they seek the prayers of the, the, prayers of the congregation for this union, okay? which is also why we've been publishing the bands of marriage uh, for the last couple of weeks. That's why to call people to prayer for that union. All right, I'm going to have to wrap this up soon. But what is signified in marriage? The covenantal union of man and woman in marriage signifies the communion between Christ, the heavenly bridegroom, and the church, his holy bride. Not all are called to marriage, but all Christians are wedded to Christ and blessed by the grace that God gives in marriage. Oh my. So, you might say, well... I'm not married, and isn't that great? Now I don't have to worry about it. Well, <laughs> you got another thing coming. Um, as the church fathers say, actually, you know, all Christians are basically female before God. They're meant to be receptive to this gift that God gives, um, wedded to Christ, blessed by that grace which God gives in marriage. Um, so that's an important thing to keep in mind. But the covenantal union of man and woman in marriage signifies something greater than the natural um, than that natural thing which happens in marriage, uh, but signifies the union between Christ, or in that communion between Christ, the heavenly bridegroom, and the church's holy bride. Um, 
Paul, of course, speaks to this in Ephesians chapter 5. Um, well, let's look at it. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 31 to 32. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This is taken straight out of Genesis, also repeated by Jesus. This mystery is a profound one, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Um, so, marriage shows forth, uh, shows forth in the way that nothing else can, the identity of the church as the bride of Christ. Now, how does it do that? Well, let me just say a few things. We used to call marriage holy matrimony. Do you know why? It's kind of a fun one. We've forgotten all about this. Because people before the age of contraception actually believed that when a woman became married, she became a mother. Um, that, that marriage was necessary to that happening. So they say, well, she becomes a mother. She begins to multiply herself. Um, and so we, when we think about the church, it is by the indwelling presence of Christ in his church that the church is brought to multiply. Um, dynamic multiplication of the church, dynamic multiplication of the disciples. Another one, this is great. Think about the incarnation for a moment. In the incarnation, um, the second person of the Trinity, the eternal second person of the Trinity, takes to himself a full human nature. Um, there's a kind of marriage going on there, yes? And the, the human nature which he takes upon himself is, is basically not just one human nature, but redeemed humanity, which is what? The church. He takes it to himself. The two become one flesh, right? Um, that is to say that in marriage is shown forth um, the, the identity of the church as one that is brought into uh, the Trinity, which is an amazing, amazing thing. If you, go, if you come to our house and look on the wall to the right of our front door, you'll see this beautiful icon of marriage. And what it shows forth is how man and woman are enraptured into the Trinity um, through the gift of the Holy Spirit. Um, but this is an important thing, and I think it's, it's one of the reasons that I would say we, we, we strive so, so strongly uh, to make sure that our teaching on marriage is, is not lost. Um, because the teaching on marriage is, in essence, it's the gospel. Um, well, how, what does this look like? Well, it doesn't just look like good marriage, does it? It also looks like when marriages go bad, right? Because consider it, and one of the things I tell couples when they're in marriage counseling is like, listen, your marriage still shows forth this relationship between Christ and his church. Um, especially when one has been wandering a bit, especially when one has been um, sinning against the other. Um, you say, well, now you know something, don't you? You know what, you know what this is like. Um, you also know uh, what is your status as a Christian, um, as one that, that Jesus forbears. Let's turn to question 130. What grace does God give in marriage? In Christian marriage, God establishes and blesses the covenant between husband and wife 
and joins them to live together in a communion of love, faithfulness, and peace within the fellowship of Christ and His church. God enables all married people to grow in love, wisdom, and godliness through a common life patterned on the sacrificial life of love of Christ. Okay, in Christian marriage, God establishes and blesses the covenant between husband and wife and joins them to live together in a communion of love, faithfulness, and peace within the fellowship of Christ and His church. Okay, so He establishes... Um, uh, meaning that he, he, he initiates it. Um, and so anytime I've got a couple that, that want to be married, I'm asking them, so let's talk about calling for a second before we even get started with all the other things. Why do you think God is calling you to marriage? Uh, because it can't just be that you basically lived out a rom-com for the last nine months or seven years or whatever it is. It's got to be that it's got to be that God is calling you to this life because he is the one who will establish it. He's the one who will bless it. Um, and he joins them to live together in a communion of love, faithfulness, and peace within the fellowship of Christ and his church. So this is an important thing. In husband and wife, God is building a communion, a being as one. And that's why the scriptures say, the two shall become one flesh. But it's within a greater communion. What's the greater communion? It's within the communion of the church that this marriage is most definitely what it is. Okay? Um, and this is not only why we, why we officiate marriages inside the church, but it's also why um, we consider that the, that the household, that the family is, in a sense, a mini-church, the domestic church, um, because it, it exists because of this perpetuation of the church's identity within the sacrament of marriage. Um, God enables all married people to grow in love, wisdom, and godliness through a common life pattern on the sacrificial love of Christ. Um, I can tell you that marriage always goes wrong when this pattern of the sacrificial love of Christ is lost. Um, and so it's something if you are married, you need to pay particular attention to. It's, when does my love look more like TV love than the cross? Um, and this is why I, every time I officiated a wedding, I give the couple a cross with a body on it. Uh, because I want them to see this. I want them to put it in their house. I want them to look at it. And I even say, put it over your bed for crying out loud. <laughs> because because this, is what you're, this is the image which you're supposed to see uh, to show forth what it is you're supposed to, uh, how it is you're supposed to live as husband and wife. Um, and so anytime our love grows cold, it's always because it's, it's drifting from the cross. Uh, we have to be called back to the cross, always back to this outpouring, this self-donation which we see on the cross. All right, let's finish up the last two uh, very quickly. What is the anointing of the sick? Through prayer and anointing with oil, the minister invokes God's blessing upon those suffering in body, mind, or spirit. Um, this comes straight out of the New Testament. Uh, in James, uh, James chapter 5, and the reference is there, he says, is any of you sick? You know, let him call for the elders. Let him call for the presbyteroi of the church. Um, and let them lay hands on them and anoint them with oil. Um, and, and also says, if they've committed any sins, their sins will be forgiven. Um, and so every priest carries with them, uh, or they should, um, I carry with this the silver box, uh, and inside is a little cotton, cotton ball infused with oil that the bishop has consecrated. Um, I take this with me everywhere because I never know when someone might need to be anointed with oil for healing. 
Um, and people often come up to me in church on a Sunday morning and say, I'd like to be anointed. And it's like, okay, let's go. <laughs> and we do this. Um, and I've memorized all those prayers. And the reason is that, um, that, I will say it quite simply, the reason we suffer in mind, body, and spirit might have something to do with our, it does have something to do with our biology, doesn't it? I mean, the reason that I have a broken arm is that I have a broken arm, right? I mean, let's, let's make that clear. The reason I have cancer is that I've got cancer. You know, it's, I've got cells that are um, coming decrepit in my body. Um, but as Christians, we have a theological take on sickness. Would you agree with that? And our theological take is that human life has become uh, bent and twisted and broken and distorted because of sin. Uh, we're dying of a terminal disease, and the terminal disease isn't so much cancer or whatever it may be, or heart disease, it's sin. Um, and so we ask for God's healing and blessing for that reason, especially when we're enduring sickness, or especially when uh, our bodies just don't function the way they should. Um, and I'll, I'll give you some stories about things in Christ Church that have just been amazing in that regard. Um, we've had people that have, that have had... Um, um, really terrible chronic illness, and we've anointed them weekly, um, and seen some amazing healing. Some of that has come because of because of doctors, yes, uh, but some of that has come in miraculous ways. There's a couple at Christ Church um, who, for ten years, struggled with infertility, and we just said, "We're going to anoint you every single Sunday until this clears." So for a year and a half, we anointed this couple with oil, praying these prayers, and. They got pregnant, what, about two years ago? Maybe, well, a year and nine months ago, actually. <laughs> and uh, and, uh, and this beautiful baby. Um, now, is that to say everybody who struggles with infertility just come, we'll anoint you with oil, and you'll, you, your infertility problems will be over? No, it's just to say that, that God pours out his grace through this um, to restore, as, and I think this is really the case with, with healing of any kind. When God gives healing, he gives it to show forth that he's doing this work in a, in, a, in, a, in a humanity which is marked by sin already. He's already working to restore us. Do you see that? Um, and I've anointed people for all kinds of things and seen healing. Um, and it's not to say that's what will always happen, uh, but what, what, do we, what do we say will always happen? You get grace. <laughs> and sometimes grace can heal you, and sometimes it can just be the very power you need uh, to survive um, or to die with dignity even. Um, so let's ask this question. What grace does God give in the anointing of the sick? As God wills, the healing given through anointing may bring bodily recovery from illness, peace of mind or spirit, and strength to persevere in adversity, especially in preparation for death. Um, now, this is an important thing because in, in the medieval period leading up to the Reformation, uh, anointing with oil and unction had become entirely about blessing the body prior to death. It had nothing to do with healing. It had everything to do with being prepared for a holy death. Um, but we've seen it in recent years that now we want to be anointing people uh, to be healed and anointing them for grace through sickness. So that's an important thing to mark out. But I still anoint people as they're dying, and that's an important part of this. Um, and in fact, uh, the most recent death in the parish, uh, Linda Burnside, 
Um, I came to her bedside the night before she died. I brought her communion. I anointed her. Um, didn't think, didn't, didn't appear to be terribly severe, so I just gave her a nice anointing of oil on the head, uh, and, and she died that night. Um, but think of, think of what that is for a second. Isn't that glorious? Um, she died um, having received grace for, for, the, for that sickness straight up to the end. Um, there have been times when I've anointed people before you know, in, in kind of this, we're, we're going to do last rites, and, uh, and they live. <laughs> Who knows how that works? Uh, there have been times when I've, when I've gone to the bedside of someone, have anointed all the five senses, which is what you're supposed to do, uh, and then um, they die peacefully in their sleep almost immediately after. Um, there have been times when I've gone to a bedside of someone when they're just about to remove, from, remove life support, and, and it's a glorious thing. Um, and there have been times, uh, and, and this indeed happened with my own grandmother, where I, I sometimes people, they just don't want to go. Uh, they just want to hang on as long as possible. <laughs> and and uh, so I actually took the hand of my own grandmother and, and, and just said, you can go, it's okay. Uh, and, and began to pray these prayers, depart, O Christian soul, out of this world. And she died as I was saying that. Um, all that is to say, I, I'm, I'm very much cognizant of the reality, which is that Christians are supposed to die this way. I want you to hear that. Christians are supposed to die this way. Um, not as some medical event at the long tail end of a number of medical events, but as a holy thing. Because keep in mind, we're Christians, right? Does death have the last word for us? Not at all. Not at all. And it's a terrible, tragic thing, and it happens because of sin. But, but let, me, let me get this clear to you, is that um, we should all desire that holy death. We should all desire um, to die with, with grace and to die with, and that grace is so given in that oil um, and in those prayers. Um, and I would say as well, this is, a, this is an incredible witness to a world that has lost its marbles with regard to death. Death has become some sort of um, sterile thing that's supposed to happen in a nice hospital room, right? Um, but, but Christians have this incredible ability to show people how to die. Um, it's an incredible witness to the gospel. It's an amazing thing. Um, and so I want, to, I want you to consider that. Um, lastly, one more thing that I will say. Um, uh, we like to help people at Christ Church prepare their plans for, for burial, and you might think, well, I'm not old enough for that yet. Yes, you are. <laughs> um, and so uh, we, we have a form available for planning your funeral. Uh, I will make these available to you uh, as soon as Lent comes around the bend uh, because there's nothing like trying to plan a funeral for someone who hasn't let you know what they want. Um, but it's a wonderful exercise um, in, in the Christian life to prepare your own burial and to kind of prepare the service and pick the hymns and do all those things. Um, and so I want to encourage you to think about that um, as these months go by. We will pick up next week. Thank you.